Ladies and gentlemen, we are back with another episode of the Movie Maniacs Podcast. It's been a month, but we have returned. And we've got three big summer movies to discuss. A lot's been going on over the uh, summer movie season. Some good, some bad. We're going to discuss it. We also have Oppenheimer coming out this week. I'm seeing it Friday. It's my most anticipated movie of the year so i'm going to preview my thoughts on that on the back end of this show i've got a couple a a, a couple little pieces of movie news that i think are worth discussing but i feel like a lot of the news stems from the three films that we're going to be talking about today those three films being the flash indiana jones and the dial of destiny and then last weekend i saw an early screening of it on Monday, and I've now seen it twice, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Could be a bit of a longer episode. We'll see how things go, but I'm very excited to get into those three films because I have a lot to say on the, each of them in particular. The main thing that I wanted to discuss, and I haven't done an episode on this since we last talked, and that was Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Other than these three films, not much has really transpired since that last review. But one big thing is going on in Hollywood that I think is very much worth discussing. That's, of course, the writer and actor strike that we're seeing right now. We haven't seen seen the ramifications of it yet, but I think we'll start to see it more as we get uh, deeper into this strike. Um, The last time... That writers and actors went on strike at the same time was in the 60s. And you could say after that strike, there was a bit of a renaissance with uh, movies. Lucas, Coppola, Spielberg, uh, Scorsese, De Palma. Those five really stemmed after that strike. So you could be potentially seeing um, some nice changes in the way that things are being done. And we're really going to be talking a lot this episode about the landscape of movies. And this is a subject that's going to transfer into um, next week's episode where I'm going to review Oppenheimer uh, with Patrick. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, And I'm very interested in seeing how Oppenheimer does at the box office because it could be a sign of things to come. But anyway, we're going to get to that later. But I think I'll, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on these strikes in particular, but listen, things have changed so much since writers went on strike last time. I'm going to look up when that was actually. When was the last time writers went on strike? That was, oh, not the 60s, right? 2007 to 2008 was the last time there was a writer strike. Think about how much has changed since then in the landscape of movies, right? We've have got Netflix. We've got all these streaming services now where it really feels like that's the new landscape for movies. Now, uh, Tom Cruise and Christopher Nolan would have something to say about that. And I, for one, am a, a, uh, is, am a uh, somebody who champions uh, the movie theater experience. It's the way I like to see movies. Even though my AMC theater... Uh, my IMAX theater is just atrocious. I went to go see Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning uh, again on Sunday. Just an awful theater experience. The chairs suck. The chairs are squeaking. Uh, 
you you look at like the best, you know, like the the screen it should be bigger. But anyway, you think about how much has changed since 2007, 2008. The you know, the, the, the way that shows pick up steam through streaming, all this stuff. I don't really have to explain that to you guys. Um, but it makes sense why writers would be going on strike now. Same with actors. And these aren't really coming from movie stars necessarily. It's more of the smaller actor, uh, playing field. But we saw, I think a couple days ago, the cast of Oppenheimer leave the London premiere early as a show of their support. Um, and listen, I th- hope some good comes out of this because I do think with the landscape of entertainment, movies, and television right now, uh, the things do need to be changed for both the writers and the actors. So it makes sense um, what changes will come out of this. We'll have to see. Once again, I'm not an expert on this, but it's something worth bringing up because it's important and people ought to be aware of it. There are a lot of things, particularly on the writer's side, that is very interesting just about how much the landscape of movies have changed with Netflix, Disney Plus, Max, Apple TV Plus, Hulu. I mean, you can see how so much has changed since the last time they went on strike. And who knows what will come out of both having the writers and the actors go on strike at the same time. Things could get really, really interesting. But I don't mean to diddle-daddle around the main topics of conversation. Uh, I originally recorded a review for The Flash. I didn't really love how it turned out. I wanted to let the movie sit with me longer. Uh, I've got a lot of thoughts on this movie. And this is one of the more interesting films, I think, of the summer movie season. 2023 has not been playing around, ladies and gentlemen. I don't even know if The Flash is still in theaters. Um, I don't think it is, but I'm just going to double check real quick. Um, oh, let me see here. Wow. It's, it, it left AMC theaters. Wow. Yeah. So listen, the flash, uh, it, it's safe to say the movie bombed, I think, or, or did not make a whole lot of money. The reviews have been pretty mixed. I was, Going into this movie excited because I had heard that the early reactions were good. People saying it was better than Spider-Man No Way Home. I was thinking, okay, I, I can kind of get behind that. Um, I'm a I'm a Michael Keaton Batman fan, even though I wasn't born in the you know in the '80s when that was you know the big thing. Uh, I've since gone back to that era. You can go re- listen to a Sam and I's review of Batman 1989. It's not a perfect film, but the iconography there is so strong, and there's a definitely a nostalgia mind to tap into. We're going to dis- we're going to discuss Batman's role in this movie, but I had heard good reactions going in, and I'm thinking, okay, entertaining popcorn film. All right, let's see it. I was left ultimately really frustrated by the experience as a whole. I think this is a bad movie and not a very entertaining one. I'm, I'm, I'm really going to try and dive into the specifics here with this movie. I did not enjoy this experience um, at all, really. This was a really one of the more miserable theater experiences I've had probably since Thor Love and Thunder where – I just, the more the movie went on, the more I wanted to leave the theater. It was that type of reaction where this was just, I was like burying my face in my hands multiple times. My dad, I, I, I brought my dad to go see this movie. He was not enjoying the experience at, at, at all. 
and I felt bad because I had like brought my dad to go see this movie and he was not liking it. Um, but anyway, what went wrong here? What went wrong with the Flash? Well, I think there are a lot of variables to discuss here. Really, uh, some key ones that I want to mention. The first one I think has got to be um, Ezra Miller, who I don't think is the biggest mark against this movie. Now, the controversy around him is, you know, pretty well known. I think, uh, at least in the in my sphere. But for others, casual movie audiences, I don't think that really has much of a bearing. Uh, but he's he's not like a big name, right? And he's definitely faded from the you know the pop culture eye uh, as time has gone on. And since all those allegations came out, he he really has ha- has no momentum really heading into this movie. And that the the whole thing that you know he's involved with, it's disgusting. I'm not going to get into it, but it's not great. My main issue with Ezra Miller in this movie is that I don't think he's very good as the Flash. I'm not a big Flash fan, but it's kind of crazy that for such an iconic character, this is the first time we're seeing him on the big screen. That's a bit of a surprise. Um, I thought Ezra Miller was really just too much in the Joss Whedon Justice League, and I thought he was better in the Snyder Cut, but still wasn't a a character I really liked all that much. I thought he was better, but still not a character that I very much enjoyed. Um, and here in the flash, he's really annoying. Um, he grades on me for the entire movie. And I think that he shows, you know, he was in the perks of being a wallflower. And I thought he was good in that movie. I haven't seen him in anything I've liked. I haven't seen a performance of his that I've liked since that movie. But I think he does have the capability of some dramatic chops. It's really just the lack of charisma that uh, really bothers me here. He's not funny. His comedic timing is just abhorrent. And the decision for this movie to go back in time and and get a younger Barry Allen on screen with the current one and this younger Barry Allen is just more annoying, more overbearing. Is such a baffling decision to me. Why the movie would do this? Is this supposed to be funny? Is this comedy that the writers are thinking we're getting here? Like good laughs? Because as soon as this second Barry is brought in, what I had thought was going to be a movie that would only pick up as time goes on, it just got more depressing, more annoying. And... Man, I, I was really just kind of left, you know, confounded. Like, this is not a great lead. Ezra Miller just cannot hold this movie up. He's never held a film up before. He's always been playing supporting roles. The Flash, from what we saw in the Justice League, had so much going on, so much energy, right, that he you saw like he almost works better as a side character, at least that iteration. To, to bring this side character that we got in Justice League and try and make him a character that could support a movie, that in and of itself just did not work for me. I don't think Ezra Miller has the acting talent to hold up a movie, and this version of the character, this like quirkiness that they're trying to get from him is really just annoying. And, and when they bring in this younger Barry Allen, it gets hard to watch at times. So I'm I, right off the bat, I'm stuck with an actor that I don't think can hold up this movie. And also 
is kind of like a bit of a creepo. So that's also a little bit of a uh, – that's also a, a little confusing, I guess, watching the movie. But I don't think he can support the film. The next one, this is a big one for me personally. And people have brought it up before and it's been mentioned. But this one, the the visuals, the CGI, what went wrong here for this movie to cost $300 million and to turn out this poorly? I, I heard Andy uh, Muschetti, who directed the It films, I heard him come out and say – that this was intentional. Um, why? Why? Uh, why is that the case? You've got three hundred million dollars on your hands, and you crap this out. This zero color palette. Uh, just it, the look itself is just drab, dreary. And anytime we go to the action sequences in this movie, I'm just left. I mean, hands up, stepping back. Like I don't know what. This movie wants me to get from this. Like, this doesn't look good. The choreography's bad. Batman and the Flash are just CGI creatures. So I'm like, you know those those battle simulators where you can like get like a million soldiers versus a million soldiers and like have them fight. It's like this really cheap looking graphic computer game. That is essentially what the third act of this movie looked like to me. It's a it's about of that quality where this is like if this was the 90s or like the 2000s I guess I would be a little bit more kind here but I'm sorry you've got 300 million dollars on your hands not a lot of big names Michael Keaton's a, you know he's a he's a well-known actor but he's not Robert Downey Jr. he's not Chris Hemsworth he's or The Rock or Kevin Hart he's not these big names he, he's not that expensive Ezra Miller Probably it doesn't cost a whole lot to get. I'm trying to – I mean you got a really weird cameo at the end of the movie that doesn't, uh, doesn't even feel like it actually happened, but it did. Um, but this movie should not look as bad as it does. And Andy Buscemi's directing here – I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, but his directing here is just flat-out bad. It's flat-out bad. This movie looks bad. It's sloppy from start to finish. Writing wise, I'm not getting a whole lot from the script that's engaging. This is stuff that we've seen before. And I don't mean to bring, you know, the Spider-Man Beyond the Spider-Verse card out, but you look at what that movie did with the multiverse and look at what this movie does with the multiverse. I mean, you got originality and then you've got flat out just like Chat GBT wrote this movie or something like that. Like it's it's about of that quality where it's like, okay, this is every multiverse plot we ever get. What new is this adding besides a time travel, you know, attempt to save Barry's mom? Which I'll be honest, I thought was one of the better aspects of the movie. I think the stuff between Barry and his mom was actually capable of being touching at times. And I found myself somewhat invested in that part of the movie. Especially in the third act, I thought they resolved it in a pretty touching scene at a convenience store that I thought worked pretty well. But really, I'm not getting a whole lot from what new this movie's doing with the multiverse. And after this movie, I'm kind of done with the multiverse. I, I It's been done. We've seen it from the MCU. We've seen it from um, Spider-Man. And I'm cool with them continuing it. But quit making this a trend because it's only worked with Spider-Man. 
nobody else has done a good multiverse movie, in my opinion. At least some people, you know, maybe big Sam Raimi fans and say Doctor Strange 2 was really great. I didn't find that to be the case. Uh, let's stop with the multiverse, time travel. It's making things too complicated for no reason. Just make a good movie. Just make a good movie. And listen, the obvious reason they're doing this is now more than ever, nostalgia is the word of the day. Jurassic World Dominion, right? Bringing back the the uh, older cast. You've got No Way Home bringing back the Spider-Man actors. We're seeing this all the time. It's cameo after cameo. We're getting this all the time these days. And the only reason that this is a multiverse movie, it, there is the Flashpoint comic, and I understand that's a good piece of source material but i mean one of the big selling points for this movie is not even the flash it's that we've got two batman on screen and i'll be honest i thought both iterations were pretty poorly handled i don't feel like batman has good action in this movie we're going to talk about keaton later on but i thought they dropped the ball in that aspect of the movie and then you get to this third act and this is going to be a spoiler Review, by the way. This movie's been out for a while. People can go see it. I don't recommend you see it, but if you want to, go ahead. We get to the third act of this movie, and it it, it was almost like it, it, the, the, the amount of laziness shown in this third act where it's just a straight-up dump of cameos and nostalgia. Nicolas Cage as Superman, which I th honestly thought was kind of cool. But then you got... Um, Christopher Reeve as Superman return like in some fake deed CGI paced act, which is kind of like, I mean that's a little disrespectful. And then you've got the older Superman from the TV show who didn't even like playing this character for them to resurrect him. Uh, there, you could go down some rabbit holes there where this is morally wrong, but I won't. I won't go down that road all i want to say is that this is pretty apparent for what they're doing here and it's lazy it's the bare minimum of entertainment it's look faces you recognize yahoo right like woo okay like there's nothing more to that other than a slideshow essentially of actors you recognize and characters you recognize but is there anything like of substance here? No, it, it's pretty clearly not the case. And I want to go into the Batman side of things because Keaton returning as Batman could have been so good, could have worked so well. I'm disappointed this movie chose to bring back Keaton for this. I've always wanted a Batman Beyond movie, and Keaton would have worked great for that role. And maybe 15, 20 years down the line, we could see Ben Affleck make a bit of a return and play the older Batman. I think that would work really cool. Josh Brolin as Batman in like The Dark Knight Returns or even in this supporting role for Batman Beyond. There's a lot of cool casting rabbit holes you could have gone down with, but Keaton is a clear candidate for playing this older mentor Batman. And I was interested in, okay, how is this movie going to tackle him being older? Is that going to add anything to the story here? Because that's a big part, right? We're seeing in the trailers him put on the suit, but I mean, Keaton is how old is Michael Keaton? Let's pull that up. 
71 years old. We got a 70-year-old Batman. I would have liked to see, seen, and this was almost probably naive of me to hope for, but maybe we could see a little bit of maturity with this character, a, a nice evolution. I guess the movie sort of does that where he's like this, he's all secluded in his house or whatever, and then Barry gives him a speech and he comes back, and that's about the extent of his arc. But Batman really doesn't get much of a meaningful character arc over this story. The action around him, as I've said before, looks really bad. It doesn't look good. I could appreciate some of the recreation or the recreation they did of the Bat Cave and the house and stuff like that. That very clearly was done by fans, you know, who like the 89 film and brought it to life once again here i thought that that part of the movie was well done and keaton is good here but he doesn't really get a whole lot to do here so i can't even go start so far to say that this is a great performance because he's not given anything here to be great to you know bring nostalgia i mean the nostalgia that you're getting from this is him quoting lines that he said i'm trying to do the math here like, I mean, 30 years ago, pretty much 30 years ago, he was saying, you want to get nuts, let's get nuts. I'm Batman. Like, these are just about the bare minimum, you know, nostalgia fest stuff that you can do. Oh, what's the famous? Oh, you want to get let's get nuts? Okay, Keaton, you're just going to say that to the camera. Uh, ready and action. Okay, like, I'm not really getting a whole lot from these lines, I have a, a nostalgic side of me for the Batman 1989 film. But, I mean, in all honesty, there's a couple cool shots they managed to get of him here that I thought looked neat. Like him coming out of the plane was nice. The the wings, all that stuff, that looked cool. But, I mean, it, this is just a rollout, you know, okay, here's Batman and Keaton's back. And, okay, there you go. It's pretty much the bare minimum here, and I don't think it's handled well. I think it's sloppy um, and just cheap. Any thrill that you're getting from this, you know, return and keep donning the caligate, it's all cheap. There's nothing of substance here in this return. And then Ben Affleck, who I've always felt could give that great Batman performance and had the look and had the the acting chops to do it. Once again, he gets nothing good to do here. They throw in this Wonder Woman gag here that didn't make me laugh. was just kind of awkward to watch. Like, why are these the lines you're giving Batfleck here? Like, come on, can we get something cool here? And the, the action sequence with him where they're trying to, you know, there's like these goons or whatever, and the building's collapsing, all that stuff. He's like got a grappling hook on this truck, and he's like, going like he's like bumping into cars and like getting crushed on pavement it's just not well done action it's so clearly cgi it's just poor action directing it's hard to watch the idea of bringing back keaton as batman and the other cameos that we see throughout the movie they're done in such a to me at least, and I've heard people enjoy some people enjoy this movie, and if that's the case, then good for them, and I'm happy that they enjoyed the movie. In my experience watching this movie, it was just depressing. It wasn't done with any 
clear love for the characters or like the movie had any interest in actually giving them a good story and add that to that just the visual flair is just not even there but it, it was almost depressing watching keaton be put back in this like he's still in his 30s or however old he was when he was playing uh batman back then there was no evolution to this character and there's and they were just kind of rolling him out just to like make some money if if this felt like such a cold uncaring way to go about bring back characters and to do this little nostalgia trip that the flash is trying to be it just felt lifeless and honestly depressing I, i i don't have a whole lot more to say on this movie i don't think it deserved to make any money uh i thought the marketing around the movie was just not really there i mean there were trailers and and I heard people were real excited. I actually I forgot to mention this, but when I went to go see the movie, uh, the trailers were wrapping up, and I was like, okay, I need to go use the restroom before the movie starts. Two and a half hours long, by the way, this movie. Just insane. Two and a half hours. Anyway, anyway, I'm heading to go to the restroom, and there's these two guys in the hall. I mean, just I'm not even sure what they were doing, but they're like, the flash, let's go. And it was like, I was like, I was like laughing. I was like, what is going on down here? They had their flash posters and they were like, let's go for the flash. Oh, oh. And I'm walking towards the and they stopped me like, hey, you here to go see the flash? And I was like, yep. And they're like, let's go. And they started like jumping up and down and stuff like that. It was. It was funny, a little stupid, but at the same time, I was like, okay, at least there's some people here that are actually really excited to see this movie. And I had, and I saw stuff like that in like comment sections, and I just wasn't ever getting it. I didn't think any of the trailers for this movie looked good to begin with. I was hoping, 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 hoping that what we were seeing from the trailers was like this unfinished product and it's really not the case it's every bit as bad as it looks in the trailers nothing is improved here i mean absolutely nothing was improved um once again i want to reiterate keaton is good and i think um let me pull up her name real quick um let me see i can't even Finder on oh uh Sasha Cal, who is playing Supergirl here. I thought that this kind of darker take on Supergirl could have been a really good idea, but I mean they featured her in the trailers, but she's barely a factor in this movie to begin with. And the way they utilize Batman and Supergirl in the third act is honestly just like forehead slappingly bad the whole third act i just didn't think was good i had heard from reviews it the first act starts a little slow but it starts to pick up and it gets really good that was not my experience with the movie it just kind of got more and more unbearable i'm just i was ready to leave the theater i know there was an after credit scene i didn't stay for it i i did not care Let's move on. And by the way, I haven't mentioned this, but the love interest, Iris, anytime they get these two actors on screen together and try and get this like romance thing going on, I mean, the chemistry is just not there. And the dialogue is so bad. I just, 
man, it was some of the, it was generally the dialogue between Barry and Iris was some of the worst stuff I have seen this year. The acting's bad. The writing's bad. It's awful. But there is drama here, I think, that does work. I also like some of the scenes between Barry and Ben Affleck's Bruce Wayne. Not when ba- when Ben Affleck is wearing the suit. If he ever did wear the suit, I mean, it all looks CGI. But I'm assuming he might have at some point. But when they are showing them on, they have this little interaction, kind of this mentorship role. I like that stuff. And the way that dynamic translated between Barry and Keaton's Batman... I also thought that there was some good stuff there, but ultimately this is not a good movie in my opinion. The writing is not there in the slightest, and it's not fun. It isn't well shot. And I think Andy Musashi really did drop the ball big time here. And I'm sorry if I'm saying the man's name wrong, but I heard he's going to be directing Batman The Brave and the Bold. Uh, I hope they fire him after this because this directing was just poor, abhorrent, not good. Get someone else. And everything he does with Batman here, just isn't good. So why would you hire him to direct a bad movie? It just doesn't make any sense to me. But I hope he does not come back. Uh, I'm not going to miss Ezra Miller as The Flash. Uh, this was a big miss for me. And uh, definitely a not recommend. But we got to move on to Indiana Jones and The Dial of Destiny. This was another of the boot of the year's big summer movies that I was really nervous for going in, in all honesty. And I've talked about this a little bit on the podcast, but I'll recap my thoughts going in. I was really worried for this movie. A lot of the stuff the trailers were showing me was kind of hitting those notes. The John Williams score, Harrison Ford in the costume. There were things here I was thinking, okay, okay. This you know, is hitting those notes, but then the second trailer is where things really started to go a little bit more downhill for me. I wasn't jiving with the action at all. And the Phoebe Waller-Bridge character, her dialogue was not working for me in that trailer. And so now I was starting to get nervous. I'm thinking, oh boy, here it comes. Kathleen Kennedy, who I heard was fired, by the way, um, from Lucasfilm. I don't know if that's confirmed or not, but if that's true, why did this take so long? I'm I'm actually going to talk about that later, but anyway. I was getting worried. I wasn't loving some of the set pieces they were showing. And then the dialogue with uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge was not working for me. And as I went in, we I talked a little bit about this on the podcast, I think. But the reviews from Sundance were not good. And I was getting really worried. I was getting worried this one was just not going to work. And honestly, from what we've seen from Disney recently, why would it? What have we seen from Disney to believe they can make a good Lucasfilm, a Lucasfilm film, a Lucasfilm movie, however you want to say it, a good Disney movie, a good Pixar movie, a good MCU movie, unless it's not directed by James Gunn. I mean, the I'm not going to go back into that conversation, but the, the, the brand is at an all-time low here, in my opinion. Uh, and so there were just a lot of red flags going in. <coughs> Excuse me. I want to preface this review by saying that it was very touching to see Harrison Ford talk about this movie, talk about this character, and some of the buildup to the movie. I thought that stuff was really that that stuff was really touching. It wasn't even a part of the marketing, or maybe it was in some way, but 
he's clearly such a bigger fan of Indiana Jones than he is Han Solo. And that shows in the interviews and the way he talks about this series. He spoke of such emotion and passion that I haven't really heard from Harrison Ford in a while since he's been doing press for a movie. Um, to see him like get emotional at Sundance and get emotional uh, in some of the interviews for the movie. And he felt like this movie sent the character out on a good note. And I'm happy that he feels that way. That stuff I thought was really uh, touching. And I was happy to see Harrison Ford felt like this character concluded in the right way. Now I'm going to go ahead and put my cards on the table here. Uh, I did not love this movie. I, it, it was, I can't say it was disappointing because it's kind of what I feared it would be, but it was depressing. That's kind of the word I really got walking out of the theater is, man, Kathleen Kennedy, Lucasfilm, Disney, just taking another one of these franchises that we love, I love. One of my favorite birthday memories is seeing the re-release of Raiders of the Lost Ark in theaters on my 14th birthday. Um it's a really special memory for me. I remember I remember watching these films and I watched I think we watched all four back to back in one day. And just so taken by this franchise. I've seen Raiders in the Last Crusade so many times. I watched Raiders of the Lost Ark a few weeks ago. It's such a good movie. It's perfect. It I have no critiques. Last Crusade is a blast. It's one of the best popcorn films i think there is it's a great movie temple of doom is just this weird fun creative movie that is flawed but is still a fun film crystal skull we've talked about it anyway those three films i think are very special they're films i hold dear i was worried about this movie going in and to see what I said earlier, Disney, Kathleen Kennedy, Lucasfilm, just kind of throw out this movie and not really show a lot of love for the character. In my opinion, not understand the character is a big one for me, not just not really caring. It's the lack of understanding that Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy just don't have. And I don't know if Kathleen Kennedy, I'm assuming she's not dumb because she's produced great films in the past and been a part of good stuff. But I'm almost wondering if how much of that is by her or just other forces, other powers at B. I don't know why she's still leading Lucasfilm. She's made so many mistakes with the Star Wars films. She's arguably tarnished the brand in an all-time low state say what you will about the prequels but i don't think they left fans on this sour of a note we just got the worst season of the mandalorian Andor had some of the lowest ratings star wars shows have ever had we've got ahsoka coming up which could be good but i'm not loving from a visual aspect but that's just me but the Book of Boba Fett just showed a complete lack of understanding of what people like about Boba Fett to begin with. Like him being just like a cool character. That show had none of that. 
And then we have the sequel trilogy, which just is a an absolute mess from a creative standpoint, from a appreciation of Star Wars standpoint, like understanding what people like about Star Wars. That trilogy failed utterly. And her being a part of this movie, all the signs are there. All the signs are there. I'm going to get into the, the movie itself. This is not, to me, as bad as The Flash. This is a step up, in my opinion. And there were things that I liked here. I want to start off with the opening of the film, which is kind of weird, but captured some of what I like about Indiana Jones. The de-aging stuff is weird. It's not there yet. And I didn't feel like the body double moved like Harrison Ford. It's very clearly a 80-year-old Harrison Ford talking in the opening of the movie. Why is it all shot at night? All the action scenes in the opening act and in the final act, like, I don't understand this nighttime filming that James Mangold's doing here, but I think it's probably to cover up the CGI being as poor as it is. It wasn't, I, I didn't love that aspect, but I was thinking, okay, I'm getting some of the magic coming off. I'm getting a little bit of dust here, a little bit of magical Raiders of the Lost Ark dust, maybe. And then we do this cut to Harrison Ford, hungover, I'm guessing, shirtless in this recliner chair. I'm thinking, whoa, okay. It's not quite Logan, but all right. Um, it didn't make me as mad as I thought it was going to be. Because, okay, here's the approach I'm taking. We've got an 80-year-old Indiana Jones from, like... Let's be honest, quite frankly, this movie didn't need to be made to begin with. I think that's ultimately the big problem that the Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny has. It's just not a movie anybody needed. Nobody needed another Indiana Jones movie. We've got an 80-year-old Harrison Ford who is giving a good performance here and is one of the highlights of the movie without a doubt. However, it's just not necessary that this movie is not needed and the end of my review here ultimately is just going to be that this franchise this series should have ended as a trilogy back in 1989 with the last crusade that's where this series should have ended it's the perfect ending not many trilogies or series i mean get to go out on a high note like that that's where it should have ended because nothing that's come after has felt needed, has felt necessary. It's been a big miss since then. And part of my frustration with this movie is that it just didn't need to happen. This movie never convinces me that we needed another Indiana Jones movie. But I'm thinking, okay, we're starting off Indiana Jones kind of in this late life crisis. His wife has left him. Again, Shia LaBeouf, spoiler alert, died in Vietnam. So that's part of the rift between him and Marion. Um, and he's leaving his job. His life is just not in a good place right now. Um, and so it's taking this deeper approach here. It's not what fans 
on the surface would want, but I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to give this a shot here and make this more of a character study than it is an actual, you know, action film. The movie chooses not to do that. And I think that's a problem here. It could have been a great character study. That's what Logan was, you know, which is another movie James Mangold directed. Logan, more than anything, to me, is a character study. And that's what Indiana Jones should have been. It doesn't have to go to the places that Logan did. But it definitely needed to focus more on the Indiana Jones character and his arc through this, by the way, two and a half hour long movie. Movie is way too long. It's the longest Indiana Jones movie by 30 minutes. That should not have been the case. Big, big miss. Not every movie has to be two and a half hours. Studios need to learn that. This movie's way too long. I checked my watch 10 different times during this movie. Big, big, big miss here. This movie should not have been as long as it is. Anyway, it should have focused more on the character here, and that's not what Dial of Destiny ended up being. It is an attempt to capture that magic and utterly failing. I never get that Indiana Jones spark out of these movies. Mangold is a good director. I love Ford versus Ferrari. I love Logan. This is not his best work at all. It just doesn't capture any of that Spielberg magic. And that's what this series has always been about. And Dial of Destiny is just sapped dry. It has none of that spark. It has none of that magic. And that's part of why this movie is as big of a miss as it is. It just doesn't capture any of the magic the first three films have. The action sequences are not blood pumping. They're not exciting. Not plumping. They're not blood pumping. They're not exciting. They're just digital CGI stuff that we get all the time. And the Indiana Jones films, except for Crystal Skull, which is the worst of this series, except for Crystal Skull, this has been a series that has been about the practical effects, about it feeling real and the car chases and all that stuff. Those, that stuff was meant to be real. And I understand they went on location with some of the stuff in this movie. But when you get these action sequences and Harrison Ford is jumping out of an airplane or he's jumping from car to car and he's an 80-year-old man, it just doesn't work. And then visually, they're just not stimulating. It's just this kind of – it gives me that lukewarm feeling that CGI and digital does a lot now with these modern movies. And that's part of my kind of – disconnect from the movie is it just doesn't have that visual look yes they they recreate the time period and i think there are moments where the directing does shine but most of the time it's just kind of this digital cgi coded film that was just kind of like almost dystopian in how different it felt than the first three films in its directing and in the filmmaking behind it then we have Phoebe Waller-Bridge, or Phoebe, Phoebe, whatever, who I understand is a big deal from Fleabag, which I have not seen, but I really, really 
did not like this character. And this could have been Shia LaBeouf. This could have been, I don't know, whoever. Think of any actor they could have brought in to play this role. It doesn't. It doesn't have to do with she's a girl. But I think that probably makes a. I probably think that was in Kathleen Kennedy's mind because she's clearly got this thing going on where she's going to cast this white British lady to take the movie over from a Luke Skywalker or Indiana Jones. Um, this is another case of that. It just is. And I don't understand why she takes up so much of this movie with this sidekick character that's being brought in here i didn't understand this decision she takes up so much screen time she shares this movie she arguably takes it over from harrison ford when we get to the third act of the movie which has so many problems the going back in time spoiler alert the the decision this character makes to rob harrison ford to rob indiana jones of his character arc is just a abysmal bad decision to make because ultimately Harrison Ford has no arc in this movie. He is, gets that decision, this pivotal decision taken away from him by just being like almost it's almost it is this is what it is. It's Luke Skywalker taking that lightsaber and just throwing it behind him. It's that level of just disrespect, lack of understanding of why fans are even watching this movie. And I don't think Phoebe Waller-Bridge is that good in this movie. She's not charming. She's not charismatic. She's rude, quite frankly. And the movie just implies that she is a, has a lust for money and sleeping around with men. And she's just kind of cool with that. That doesn't ever get resolved. And this is like a role model. I'm assuming Disney and Lucasfilm would like this to be a, a role model. Uh, I'm not really cool with that, but whatever. I don't understand that decision at all. But she's not charismatic. She doesn't have a heartfelt connection to Indiana Jones. At the start, the movie kind of plays her like she is this almost this fan who wants to bring back the glory days of Indiana Jones. And I was thinking, okay, if the movie actually did that, then, okay, that would have been a good idea. And we could have played off of that a little bit more. But instead, she's just this really, I don't know, rude and the kind of just hurtful character. She's always you know, arguing with Indiana Jones, one-upping Indiana Jones. I mean, the movie is a pretty much a two-and-a-half-hour show of Indiana Jones just cannot do anything right in this movie. He, Anytime he tries to pull out a history fact, he doesn't even he doesn't know that enough he doesn't he doesn't offer anything to the table ultimately and listen if this was a movie of indiana jones his body failing him he wasn't able to do everything here i'd have actually liked that so it would have been cool to see indiana jones have to rely more on his wits rely more on his 
vast knowledge of history and all that stuff. That would have been a really cool way and have Phoebe Waller-Bridge be this really capable young woman who can do the stunts and all that stuff. But when it comes to the knowledge, the older senior character has the answers. That would have been a really good dynamic for this movie to have. Instead, he just doesn't do anything right here. And it, we're kind of left with Harrison Ford following our characters around. Doesn't do a whole lot. And it's kind of a disappointment. It's sad, honestly. It's sad to see this character just kind of get disrespected in this way. In this not great looking movie and all of the typical Lucasfilm Disney mistakes that we see so often these days are just apparent here. The new additions, the new characters just don't work. Mads Mikkelsen is so good at playing a villain, but never actually gets to play a good one. And this is a, another case of that. He just does not ever get an actually well-written villain ever. <laughs> but he does his best here. He also has a really tough chin apparently because he just pretty much takes a full-on hit on train to the face. The movie never acknowledges it. It's a little slap, too slapstick for me, in my opinion. That was just a really odd decision. But ultimately, I want to highlight two things about this movie that work. Harrison Ford and the score by John Williams. Harrison Ford is acting his butt off here. He is clearly invested in this character wants to see him have a good resolution um and i thought that he did a very good job in the emotional moments in the stunt moments he still acts like he is 40 years old in certain scenes but man i really do feel like he came and gave a good final performance as this character and that is one of the biggest compliments i can give this movie this is not harrison ford going through the motions he is delivering a very solid performance as his last time as this character and i thought that was very uh, just a terrific bright spot for this movie and then we have an another legend of the game John Williams, his potential final score. This man is, I think, he is 91 years old. He has been making scores longer than my parents have been alive. And that's a crazy, crazy thing. And the man is consistently good. He's influential. And this final score from him potentially he said he may come back if it's a spielberg movie but right now this is his last score it is beautiful i've listened to it since then it's a very beautiful score it's got good new themes i thought helena's theme was really good it is the perfect blend of old Indiana Jones mixed with some new themes as well it's a score i'll return to it's a great final piece of music for John Williams. I Those two in particular are the big compliments I can give this movie. And what I'm honestly 
holding on to because there's not really much else in this movie for me to really hold on to. But those two factors, I thought, were some of were just very well done. The score and the final performance from Harrison Ford. To summarize everything, I can't claim that I had high expectations for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny going in. Because of Disney and Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy's track record leading up to 2023, what reason exactly, other than James Mangold and Harrison Ford, would I have to believe that this was going to be a good movie? So I can't say that I was disappointed. But it made me depressed because this is just another example of Lucasfilm, Disney, Hollywood, the, the, the patterns that we've been seeing from them the past few years. Indiana Jones in the Dial of Destiny is just another rehash, cash grab, attempt at nostalgia that really doesn't understand what made Indiana Jones what it is. It's such a... It, it has such a lack of understanding as to what people liked about the first three films and lacks any of the spark that made those movies so special. I, I've said this before, but Steven Spielberg has this style in his directing, this magic in his directing that no other popcorn director has. And this movie does not even come close to that and i was hoping that james mangold would be that guy to add something fresh to the indiana jones character and to be able to get capture that energy and to capture that magic into the final installment for this character and ultimately that is not what we got i want to reinstate Harrison Ford and John Williams kill it here. They do a great job. But that's really all the positives that I can gain from this movie or that I can really feel comfortable or, or, or really even find with Dial of Destiny. The filmmaking behind this. James Mangold has made great-looking movies before. This is not one of them. It's such a digitally... CGI coded film, nothing feels real. Nothing has any, uh, you know, tactile feeling to it. It's really just a bunch of digitally coded movie that we've seen from the MCU and Star Wars where nothing feels tactile, nothing feels real. How am I supposed to have in any investment in these action sequences where I know this, how this was filmed on a, you know, on a soundstage or whatever with green screen, nothing feels real. I know they went to location at, to locations at times. It doesn't show. Fast and Furious does actual car stunts. They flip cars. You wouldn't get that from watching Fast X. You could not tell watching the past few Fast and Furious movies. Nothing feels real. I don't care if you went to locations. I don't feel like I am there. I, this movie is not immersive in any of its locations. It, I'm just kind of taken aback by the just the kind of calloused, you know, artificial feeling that this movie has. Then we have Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who 
just doesn't work for me here. And this character is such a sticking point here. It's not the actress. No, it is the actress. She does not do a good job in this movie, but it doesn't matter. It really comes down to how much of the movie she takes up, how poorly the character is written. She ends up almost taking this movie over from Indiana Jones. I was, I almost forgot at times I was in an Indiana Jones movie because this movie spends so little time on him and on his character and on the arc that he's meant to have in the movie to the point where I just don't have a whole lot of care about his arc. I want to, but this movie doesn't spend enough time with him for me to really get all that invested in his arc. I understand what the movie's trying to get at, but it just doesn't spend enough time on him where Dial of Destiny needed to be a character piece. It needed to be a movie focused on delivering a good send-off to this character. And unfortunately, they don't succeed here. This is not a movie that I feel sends this character off on a on a triumphant note despite the great Harrison Ford performance that we're getting here it ultimately isn't enough it doesn't feel like a satisfying conclusion to this character and it just is another movie you would lump into I don't know Jurassic World Dominion Halloween Ends Star Wars these franchise films that I don't think I reviewed Halloween Ends for the for the podcast. That was one of the movies I hated most last year because of its complete tone-deaf understanding of what people like about the Halloween franchise. I am okay with being challenged and pushed as a fan, but Ryan Johnson and David Gordon Green clearly just are not the guys to do that they don't understand how to evolve a franchise how to push a fan base they're just kind of disrespectful to the fan base and disrespectful to the property halloween ends was like that and then jurassic world dominion was just kind of lazy in its attempt to bring back old characters and then like throw up their hands like isn't this enough for you i'm sorry but that isn't enough and dial of destiny is right there it's with it's like jurassic world dominion and it's also like halloween ends because it doesn't understand what people like about the indiana jones movies and then it has the audacity to make this more about helena shaw than it does about indiana jones that's really how it felt to me and maybe my interpretation of this movie is wrong and you know i always put the email moviemax2020 gmail.com for people that disagree with me, if you disagree with my interpretation of this character and, and the movie as a whole, then let me know. I haven't really seen a whole lot of pushback on that. I, I've seen a couple positive reviews for this movie, and if people felt like this was a good send-off, then I'm happy for them. But the visuals, the poor writing here, nothing ends up resulting in a satisfying conclusion for this character. And as an Indiana Jones fan... That was really sad to see. So it is a not recommend for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny. And we got to move on. We got to move on to the next movie. It came out last weekend. I've seen it twice. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. At this point in the game, seven installments in Mission Impossible has become one of the go-to franchises out there, in my opinion. 
one of the go-to series. I've rewatched these movies multiple times. Mission Impossible Fallout is one of not only my favorite action movies, but it's one of my favorite movies. After seeing Dead Reckoning Part 1 a second time, I rewatched Fallout. And that movie doesn't miss a beat. That is a, a, a really, I'll say, perfect action movie. You can nitpick certain things here and there, but as an action movie fan, that movie leaves me totally satisfied from a writing standpoint to a thematic standpoint to the cinematography, the choreography, the stunt work, the performances, the occasional sprinkle of humor. That movie just is a perfect action movie, in my opinion. And one of the best movies of that of its respective decade. It's a great movie. And Tom Cruise and the Mission Possible franchise as a whole have been incredibly, incredibly consistent. It has only gotten better. Mission Impossible 2 was a bit of a dive. I'll be honest, though. Mission Impossible 2, it is cheesy. It is kind of bad. But it is to say that's the worst movie of the series, it's kind of a compliment to how good this series is as a whole because you could do a lot worse than Mission Impossible 2. And action movies have been doing a lot worse than Mission Impossible 2. So while I don't like that film, I don't want to rewatch it, you could do a lot worse than Mission Impossible 2. But since Mission Impossible 3, I believe this franchise has only gotten better. Now, I really loved Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. It is not as good as Mission Impossible Fallout. But it's really the consistency of this franchise that is so impressive. Bringing Christopher McQuarrie on, MQ as the cast calls him, uh, has been one of the best things this franchise has done. Where it's been up to Rogue Nation, up to Mission Impossible Fallout, I guess, where McQuarrie kind of put his uh, flag in the, you know, in the on the moon, I guess, and just went, I am kind of now the head director for this franchise. And Tom Cruise and I are just going to take the reins and do what we want with this franchise and have a consistency. That, to me, has taken this franchise up a notch because we now have a a, a set-in-stone world in a, in a returning cast of characters. And yes, Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg have returned multiple times through these movies and Ving Rams has been every one uh, but it feels like we really have a set in stone world where there's world building now and I think McQuarrie has been a big part of that and that's I think has elevated this franchise as a whole but Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 was first off one of my most anticipated movies of the year and one that I was just really excited for as an action fan where 2023 has been a great year for action movies. We've gotten three great action movies with John Wick Chapter 4, which I consider to be one of the best action movies of all time. And then you have Extraction 2, a very flawed film, but one that was a ton of fun, had great action set pieces, and just really delivered and was a, a fun time. And then we have Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which I, I'll be honest, guys, I had an absolute blast with. I saw it on a Monday last week, and uh, I got it was an early screening, and my dad and I were very excited to go see this movie, and man, it delivered. I, I just want to say, this movie 100% delivered. 
delivers on all the anticipation I had. I did have high expectations for this movie, considering how reliable Tom Cruise has been and how crucial the man has been recently to the state of blockbuster entertainment. Nobody's been doing it like Tom Cruise with Fallout, Rogue Nation, Top Gun Maverick, I mean, which was one of the highlights of last year, and then Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, which I've, I've been hearing had a disappointing opening weekend. I hope that's not the case. I hope this movie makes a lot of money. I hope people support this movie because I think it's an important movie. Uh, Tom Cruise is really putting a lot into this film, and his, one of, he's one of the final filmmakers or craftsmen, I guess, in Hollywood that's making movies like this, putting them in theaters, doing practical stunts. It's just a lot. There's a lot of rarity in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning. And that's what I love about this movie is the practical stunts and and just how much fun the movie is and how its only purpose is just to deliver a great time to its audience. That's what action movies are supposed to be. Tom Cruise understands what the audience wants, and he delivers every time. I hope this movie makes a lot of money. I hope people show up next year for part two, which I'm very excited for. I'm going to talk about the part one, part two aspect of the movie. Uh, that's a bit of a spoiler-free discussion. We're going to dive into spoilers uh, later on, uh, but and starting now, I guess. But go see this movie. I, I, I 100% mean that. Support the film. Go watch it. I've been recommending it to people. I don't think people are going to be left disappointed. I have seen a couple negative reviews for the movie, and that is disappointing to hear because I personally, as a Mission Impossible fan, was 100% satisfied by what this movie did. I felt like it lived up to everything I could have hoped it would be. It does do things a little bit differently, and I'm going to talk about some of the more divisive things and critiques of the movie that I've seen. I agree this is not a perfect film. Mission Impossible Thought was what I could go so far as to say is, you know, is perfect, near perfect, whatever you want to say. No real, no movie is 100% perfect. You can make a case for a couple films for sure, but it's very rare to find like a perfect film. But there's not a lot of nitpicks with Mission Impossible Fallout. There are nitpicks with Dead Reckoning Part 1, and I'm going to discuss those. But uh, like I said, watch the movie in IMAX on the big screen. It deserves it. Oppenheimer is going to come on IMAX this weekend. Go catch this movie before Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 cannot be seen in IMAX because it was a great theater experience. My audience twice. My second viewing was not as good uh, for a lot of reasons. Mainly the audience was just... The, the, it really came down to the theater. I'll be honest, my AMC theater is really bad, particularly the IMAX the chairs are squeaky. They're so beaten and battered. I need that theater to change and, and, and get a step up in chairs. We're still sitting in uh, straight up chairs, no recliners. Like, come on, AMC, what are we doing here? Give Arkansas a hand and uh, get us some better seats, please, in the IMAX. But anyway, this is a movie meant to be seen in theaters on the big screen. I encourage people to give it a watch. I think you will be left satisfied i want to start off first big thing here is the directing change because fallout and rogue nation i thought had a very similar style you could tell they were both made by mcquarrie and you could still feel mcquarrie's touch in this movie but he's doing something very different 
from Fallout and Rogue Nation. And this may not be something that caught, catches a lot of people's eyes. It did to me because directing is something I love to pay attention to when I'm watching these movies. But McQuarrie is definitely making a change. He is going for that Brian De Palma style in the first film. The movie feels very different than Fallout, very different than Rogue Nation in its visuals, in its style. Lots of dolly shots. Some may say too many dolly shots. I loved all the dolly shots. I thought they were pretty cool. Uh, but that may be a, a, a different for some people. But anytime this movie had like a Tom Cruise like looking across from somebody and like the camera's underneath him and it's in a dolly shot. I don't know. I like that stuff. The conversation between Tom Cruise and uh, or Ethan Hunt and Kittredge felt very reminiscent of the first movie. And this movie as a whole feels very reminiscent of the first movie. Lots of callbacks to the first movie. Lots of character callbacks. The return of Kittredge, who uh, is played by... I'm going to pull up his name real quick. Because he deserves a lot of credit. Because I thought he did a fantastic job in this movie. I believe his name is... Uh, Henry... Cizerni? Probably butchering that name. I thought he did a great job in this movie. I love the uh, the eye twitches. I don't know how actors do that, but when they got that twitch in their eye, that stuff was really cool. There's a lot of uh, gravitas and a dramatic edge in this performance that I thought was really cool. The movie ends on this big train set piece just like the first one did there's a lot of callbacks here and the first movie is a bit of a slower film than the other films where it's the 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 other mission impossible movies like ghost protocol rogue nation they're all about the set pieces mission impossible the first movie is all about the intri- the, the the little details that bead of sweat falling down tom cruise's uh brow the the rat in the ceiling it's all about those tiny details and De Palma stretching to get that tension from the audience. And that may work for some, may not work for others. But I think it's a, it's what makes Mission Impossible, the first movie, still stand out above all the rest because it's just such a different film than the other movies that we've gotten out of this franchise and does things so differently. McQuarrie doesn't quite go to that paranoia, you know, Mission Impossible 1 level. But he's doing a couple things differently, and that stylistic change may not work for some. I've been seeing reviews calling this movie ugly. I could not disagree more. I thought the cinematography, the choreography looked great. I think this movie looks phenomenal. I think Fallout's style itself is uh, better done, even though my favorite style maybe dead wrecking part one just because it's got a more 90s feel to it which i could appreciate but i think the better the better made movie is still mission impossible fallout but i love the visuals here i think the set pieces are phenomenal the movie really works it is a three-act structure but also a five-act structure in a way and i note and i wrote this down the movie is really split into five set pieces and only two or three Smaller bits of dialogue in between that. The prologue sequence, the Abu Dhabi airport, the Venice car chase, the nightclub, and then the Orient Express final set piece. The movie is really split into five different sections. And this is also, this needs to be mentioned, a two hour and 40 minute film. It blows by. It is quick. It is to the point. 
I really appreciated that about this movie. It does its job very, very well. It just blows by. I was really impressed with how McQuarrie was able to make that two hour and 40 minute runtime blow by just like that. I was never bored in this movie. And that's really saying something. I have been a big champion of the two hour, 90 minute movies recently. And I've been a big criticizer of movies like The Flash, movies like Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny that are these ridiculous two and a half hour runtimes and just don't need to be. And you can make the case Mission Impossible Fallout doesn't have to be as long as it is, but man, I'm not going to complain because it doesn't feel that way at all. This movie blows by just like that. It feels like two hours, and that is really very – it is very impressive. McQuarrie was able to pull that off. Um, the set pieces are obviously fantastic. I don't think that really has to be you know mentioned, but we got to talk about it. It's a Mission Impossible film. Obviously, the big stunt here that the trailers have been hyping up is the Tom Cruise – riding that motorcycle off the cliff and hitting the uh uh the parachute down it's been the big you know tease i've watched that clip of them talking about it and and them talking about how focused tom cruise is and somebody saying like tom cruise is the most focused man i've ever met or something like that i've been i've watched that video at least three times it's it's a great video, but the stunt itself is crazy. It's wild that Tom Cruise actually did this, I think, eight times in one day. The practice that goes into it, it's a great stunt. I don't know if when Dead Reckoning Part 1 is over, it's the standout of the movie. It's it's definitely the standout of the trailers, and I think when the movie finally gives us that scene, it is great. But it is not the standout part of the movie. And I think there are better moments in the film. But it I, I obviously that is the most that is the most talked about part of the movie leading in. But it isn't the best action moment. It isn't the best, you know, set piece or whatever. The best stunt. I, it's probably the best stunt, but it doesn't feel like the biggest moment of the movie. Even though, yes, that is the scene that we've been building up to. It does it it's not what I left, you know, going, wow, you know, Tom Cruise, he really did that. Where probably walking out of Rogue Nation, you're talking about, whoa, like Tom Cruise really did like ride on, <laughs> he held on to that airplane. It doesn't feel quite like this. Uh it doesn't Mission Possible Dead Reckoning Part One, it is not of that same vein, but it is a very impressive stunt. And I was and I one of the things the questions I had going into the movie was, you know. We've seen this moment so many times in the trailers. Is it going to have that same effect on the big screen? It does. It honestly was like a moment I was like holding my breath and was a really like, like it, the way, like it almost like gave me goosebumps or something. It was a really cool moment. I just didn't think it was the standout moment of the movie because there's so many other great set pieces here. And this movie moves with such an energy and such a, such a style that I don't think McQuarrie has tampered with before, but this movie moves with such a kinetic energy and gravitas that I really enjoyed. The Abu Dhabi airport sequence is not like in terms of action, the movie's peak. It's not really an action scene. It's kind of a bit of a chase and the interplay between all the characters. We're going to talk about Haley Atwell in a second, but the way you have the, uh, 
I don't know if it's the FBI, the CIA. I think it's the CIA looking for Tom Cruise. You've got Ding Rames and Simon Pegg, the guys in the chairs, and then Simon Pegg's got to go do this thing. And then you've got uh, Gabriel floating in and out. You've got this a little bit of tension between Haley Atwell and Tom Cruise, and you're wondering if you could fully trust Haley Atwell. You've got Tom Cruise looking for these keys. It's just this really well set up sequence. And it goes on for about, I, I don't know, 20 minutes probably, I would guess. And it's just this great, great scene. The way uh, McQuarrie sets it up, the way he has all these different factors, you know, you know, moving across each other. I thought that that was a really well done scene. And one of my favorite scenes of the movie one of those one of the reasons why this is one of my favorite scenes is because of Haley Atwell, who a lot of people have been talking about saying she's one of the hats of the film, and I agree a hundred percent. Haley Atwell has been in the MCU for 13 years, and this feels like her breakout role. This feels like her big break, which is crazy because she's been in Hollywood for so long and been in big, you know, blockbuster films, but this is the biggest showcase I personally have seen from her up to this point. I know she's been in some British television and other movies that maybe not are not quite up my alley, but she is so good in this movie. And they put her, she is the second name listed in this cast underneath Tom Cruise. They put her up there and she is, they are pushing for her to be the co-lead of the movie in a way. She deserves it. She is so good in this movie, so charismatic and the chemistry that she has with Tom Cruise. I don't know how this relationship will evolve into part two. If they want to go the romantic the romantic route with her, I wouldn't mind because she is she has great chemistry with Tom Cruise. This movie is all about the not all about, but one of the big pieces of what Dead Reckoning Part One is about is the women around Ethan Hunt. And this is very meta considering you know the history of tom cruise you know what we know about his relationship with women and kind of the and i've heard some people criticize this but i think it is kind of an interesting look at movie stardom and a, a, and a look at tom cruise and the way that this movie looks at the woman or the women around tom cruise how they're as soon as tom cruise has a relationship with them they are immediately in danger and the it it, it, it the struggle just as the closer they get to him, the greater the struggle is to keep them alive and to keep them safe. And while there aren't a lot of women in this franchise that have like died because of Ethan Hunt, they've always had that danger. I think uh, the lady in Mission Impossible 1 died. The uh, Daddy Newton in Mission Impossible 2, she was in a great amount of danger in that movie. And they probably had to split up because of that. Mission Impossible 3, we see Ethan Hunt get married. But in Ghost Protocol, we learn that he has to separate from her, and that's also something that ties in Mission Impossible Fallout. In Mission Impossible Fallout, we get a little bit of a conversation between Ving Rhames and Rebecca Ferguson talking about Ethan's relationship to his wife and how Rebecca Ferguson is kind of starting to take over that role, and Ethan doesn't want to see her get hurt. So we see how the women in Ethan Hunt's life are put in risk because of their connection to him. And that's something that I think Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 dives into more than any other movie. And I thought that it was interesting. It's not something that I'm 100% invested in because of the Tom Cruise aspect, but I like that little thematic note 
that Dead Reckoning Part 1 goes for. I think it's interesting, and it makes for some really good tension and a little bit more emotional weight for Ethan Hunt heading into this you know this final set piece where right before he's jumping on the, off that cliff he thinks of the lady that dies and br- kind of brings him into the IMF because of her death he thinks of Ilsa he thinks of Grace and that and then he goes off the cliff so i'm not sure how this it's not really resolved here i think part 2 is going to have to resolve that because is Ethan Hunt going to die in part one? Is Ethan Hunt going to finally, you know, break away from the IMF and be with Grace? I don't really know how they're going to resolve this. Is Dead Reckoning Part 2 going to be the last Mission Impossible movie? I don't know. Those are questions that we'll save for the end and, and talk about a little bit more. But going back to Haley Atwell as Grace, she and Tom Cruise are so good on screen. And that's part of why I love this Abu Dhabi sequence is because it's re- the interplay between the two of them, the dialogue, uh, the way they interact with each other. It just makes for really electric uh, scenes. And I think that it's one of the best parts of this movie. We're going to talk about the uh, Rebecca Ferguson Elsa character later on in this review. And you can't criticize this movie for saying, oh, Haley Atwell is just brought in because we, we're getting rid of Rebecca Ferguson as, as Elsa. And I think that could be a valid criticism of the movie. I personally really like Grace, really like Haley Atwell as this character. So if this is the stand-in for Elsa, that's about as good of a stand-in as you can get. But we're going to talk about that aspect of the movie later on in the review, and you can have fair criticisms of that. But just for this performance, Haley Atwell is one of the shining aspects of Dead Reckoning Part 1. Right after the Abu Dhabi set piece, the movie moves right into this big car chase sequence in Venice, which I loved. This was my favorite, probably my favorite, the most fun sequence that I had or or, or this my favorite set piece of the whole movie we get more of that chemistry between Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell and it's funny I think this movie leans into the comedy uh that Tom Cruise is able to bring and Haley Atwell and the rest of the cast it leans more into the comedy than I think any other Mission Impossible movie has and I thought that was good I liked how it had a nice balance of that comedy in uh, like maybe something like Ghost Protocol, which is probably the most light of the Mission Impossible movies, and blended that with Mission Impossible Fallout, which was very grim and had humorous moments, but was, a, I think, one of the more grim Mission Impossible stories where we have, you know, Salman Lane, who is just like the epitome, you know, of this evil terrorist figure. This movie had a nice balance of the levity and of the seriousness. I thought that it did a really good job of balancing that. This whole car chase in Venice is just a ton of fun. I love when, and I think McQuarrie has been one of the best directors with this, is when he makes Ethan Hunt look human. He shows him making mistakes. One of my favorite moments, just one of those little moments, that one of my favorites of the whole movie was... This moment where they get into this little, like this little yellow car, I forget what it's called, but they get in the little car and Tom Cruise is trying to get it started and he's trying to drive it. He keeps bumping into stuff and he has this moment. He's like, I'm sorry. And he's like stumbling on his words in front of uh, Haley Abel. It's just this great little moment 
that makes him look human. And we see more of those moments throughout Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, like when he crashes into the train and we're, and he like is like, are you okay? But he's kind of like stumbling around and he's looking a little goofy and he doesn't – and this whole train sequence at the end of the movie, he doesn't take up all the screen time there. There's big portions of this sequence where he's not on screen. He's not a part of the action and he's kind of off camera a little bit. I was like, where's Tom Cruise? But we get some more of those humanizing uh, – humorous moments and i thought those moments were needed and i enjoy when uh tom cruise and mcquare are able to make ethan hunt look a little bit more human and a little uh more on the goofy side it's not like he's a wacky goofy character but in those moments i get a lot out of that and that just makes me connect with ethan hunt more he's at this point ethan hunt is to me he's just as iconic as a James Bond, that may be a bit of a stretch for some, considering the legacy of that character. But man, I mean, Ethan Hunt is an action movie icon at this point with J John Wick, Jason Bourne, and James Bond. You've got to put Ethan Hunt up there. And Cruz as this character still delivers. He's a f just a, a great as this character. The supporting cast, once again, Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg still do a good job. Ving Rhames, um, is always that good comforting presence. I do want to say he was sitting down this whole movie. Uh, I hope the man is okay. The way they filmed him in this movie made me think that like he might have had like a health concern issue. He hasn't done any of the press for this movie. No interviews. I'm just saying I hope the man is okay because the way he was filmed here kind of made me think there might have been some health issues. Uh, that may be me being like conspiracy theory. That's kind of – Something that stuck with me, though, is they're kind of filming him a little differently. He's always sitting down. What's the deal with that? Anyway, Simon Pegg has a great emotional moment, by the way, in the Abu Dhabi uh, airport sequence that I thought was really good. One of the best pieces of acting that Pegg has done, I think, in the whole franchise. He got some really good stuff in Rogue Nation, and uh, this, I think, was one of his best moments. Just from an acting standpoint, Pegg did a great job um, and still delivers on humorous moments. But I think the movie really focuses on Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell, Ethan Hunt, and Grace. Uh, we got to mention, uh, you know, the Paul Clementoff, or I'm probably saying that name, but she is so good, so good in this movie, just as this, like, kind of John Wick-esque side character, this uh, kind of henchman for a Gabriel. She does a great job just with her facial acting. The in this car chase sequence where she's like having a great time smiling and like having a thrilling time in this car chase sequence. I thought her facial acting was really good in this uh, whole set piece. And she's a great antagonist to be chasing after Ethan Hunt and Grace. I thought she did a great job. I'm glad she's coming back for part two because she was one of my favorite characters in the movie. And the movie does something I thought really cool with her in the third act. That I thought had a really good payoff, and it's part of what of, of a consistent thing that we've seen from Ethan Hunt: the sparing of the life, the value of the single life. Once again, we see that played back into this franchise with this character. So I think she serves a purpose to the story and the character of Ethan Hunt as well. When we see that payoff in the third act, so I thought this was a really good character, and my respect for her as an actress just really went up seeing her do something a little bit different here. And that wasn't just Mantis from Guardians of the Galaxy. I thought was really well done. 
So I'm happy to see her do something a little bit different. You know, I'll have to pay more attention to the other stuff that she's in since she's probably done with Guardians of the Galaxy, done with the MCU. I'll be happy to see what else she does uh, post MCU. But I thought she was great here uh, in this whole action set piece uh, with the cars and stuff. I loved it. It was thrilling from the jump. It's it, it's got humor. It's got tension. It's I think one of the most fun times. I, you'll have in a movie theater this year. It was just fantastic. We got to talk about the nightclub sequence. We get Vanessa Kirby returning as the White Widow. And this is where we really get a good look at Gabriel, who is the main villain for the movie, played by Isai Morales, who was in Ozark the first season. Thought he was really good in that show. And when I saw that he was going to be the main antagonist, for Ethan Hunt in the trailer, I was thinking, okay, um, I think this is a really good pick because he's a great villain in Ozark and is very threatening, has a lot of menace. One of my nitpicks with the movie is I don't think he's one of this franchise's best villains. He has, I think he does a good job and has really good moments, but he just doesn't really have a whole lot of screen presence as opposed to a Solomon Lane who I who is always bringing something to the table in every scene he's in has a uh a face just and it has a bit of screen presence to him i didn't really get that from the the from the performance from the gabriel character but ultimately gabriel represents something outside of himself that's how the character views himself that's how i think the audience ought to view him because the real enemy here is the ai and Gabriel is just kind of the ambassador for the AI's goals. AI, now more than ever, this movie was filmed during COVID times, but now more than ever, feels relevant and feels like, uh, especially in the world of Hollywood, a very relevant thing to be uh, a big, you know, big movie event. To have AI as the main villain here feels timely. It feels distinct. It feels like something like when I'm looking back over this franchise, the AI element of Dead Reckoning Part 1 is going to be something that stands out to me. I liked this decision to make the AI the villain. It gives the movie a sense of paranoia. The way the team that has always relied on technology is now having to you know break their computers and their earpieces are being used against them. I thought that that stuff was really well done and it adds for that extra layer of paranoia where you don't know what you can trust, what you can't. I thought that that element of the movie was really well done and I like how the team has to pivot because of that. And the, uh, the, the that element that the AI brought, I thought was really well done. Um, the nightclub sequence itself, I thought had a lot of really good tension. The dolly shots were really cool. It's a really well-filmed sequence, but this is where Rebecca Ferguson, Ilsa, really comes into play. Ilsa has been a standout character the past couple films, in my opinion. Rebecca Ferguson has crushed it as this character. It's a memorable character. It's a fan favorite character. And some of the outrage that I'm seeing towards Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is stemming from the uh the spoiler by the way the killing of this character the death of this character that's really what i want to dive into with this particular section of the movie because i understand the complaint i understand why this might have rubbed some people the wrong way 
uh, especially if this is one of your favorite characters of the franchise, which I think is the case for a lot of people. And Rebecca Ferguson as this character has been really good. And she is good in this movie when she's on screen. This movie doesn't utilize her a whole lot, though. She does not feel like a leading character very much put on the supporting character side but what she means to ethan is really like what makes her character important in mission impossible dead reckoning part one um i wish this movie had utilized her a little bit better i'm not gonna lie i like i said i think this movie is not perfect it does make make mistakes i think that this aspect of the movie was one of them the killing of her character i've heard a lot of people say they didn't like the way the sequence was filmed I don't think it's a poorly done sequence, but it definitely could have been done better. It's not the best hand-to-hand action sequence McQuarrie has done. You Going back to Mission Impossible Fallout after watching Dead Reckoning Part 1 and seeing what McQuarrie did with the bathroom sequence, which is just some of the best hand-to-hand fights we've gotten this century. I mean, that sequence is so memorable. The sword fight between her and Gabriel just is not that memorable of a fight. It's not the best choreographed. It could have been done better. But I think the emotional weight of her death was well done. And it's emotional, I thought. I thought that the death of this character was emotional. It stuck out. You get that pain from Ethan Hunt and how that maybe could drive him potentially off the rails in the third act of this movie. I thought made for some, some tension. I liked that aspect of the movie. But I understand the complaint that people don't think it is as well done. Um, or some people have been calling it bad. I wouldn't go so far as to say that. But I'm not going to lie. It probably could have been handled better. But it's not a major sticking point for me. But it's definitely going to be divisive for some. And I understand that complaint. It wasn't a big one for me. It made me emotional. I thought the scene paid off pretty well. Uh, but I understand the anger from certain fans that really love this character. And I have enjoyed this character in the films that she's been in and was sad to see her go. Uh, but the outrage, I understand. I can't I can't agree with it, though. I, I don't share in the outrage, but the sequence probably could have been done better. But it serves a very important purpose in the story. Also, we got to mention Vanessa Kirby as the White Widow, putting that charisma on full display. She was really good in Fallout. I think she's really, really good here. And the role that she serves in the movie, I thought was really well done. I wasn't expecting her to be such a pivotal character in the grand scheme of Dead Reckoning Part 1. But I really liked the role that she played in the movie. I want to talk about the final action set piece here since we've kind of broken this movie uh, set piece by set piece. Um, I loved the final act of this movie. I think it's a blast. Dead Reckoning Part 1 offers some of the most fun you're going to have in a movie theater all year. It's top-tier action entertainment, and this final set piece is that on full display. It starts off with kind of that Mission Impossible style, uh, masks, all that stuff that makes for great tension, and then when it explodes... It's just as fun, and there's great tension in these uh, the the car uh, the like the separate train car sequences and the way they're jumping and the way it, each car is different. The obstacles that it makes for uh, Ethan Hunt and Grace, I thought that was really good. McQuarrie just knows how to set up the action set piece and then deliver on the buildup. This final set piece, I think, is that on full display. We get more of the chemistry between Ethan Hunt and Grace that I've 
been kind of championing this championing this whole review. Uh, I like the role that Grace plays in the final. Like, I like how Dead Wrecking Part One is showing the recruitment process of an IMF agent and how Grace is given the choice and does she accept it? That's a cup. That's a little detail that Dead Reckoning Part One puts into this movie that I personally really liked. The role she plays in this final act is really good. And the interplay between her and Tom Cruise, I just loved throughout the whole movie and, and still love here. People have pointed out the use of CGI and this apparent in the movie is pushing the boundaries a little bit with CGI that I just don't think it is able to fully hold. I'll be honest though, I'm so invested in this final action set piece and having so much fun that when I notice, okay, there's a little bit of CGI here, I'm really not that bothered by it. This is a franchise that has been all about the practical effects, that it's going for something here that's not too outlandish, but requires some CGI. I'm willing to give them that because still things still felt tactile and real, and you can tell that Tom Cruise and Haley Atwell are doing these stunts. I still was very invested in this final set piece. It's a great way to cap off the movie. It's a blast. The uh, whole car jumping sequence was just, um, I mean, I was on the edge of my seat. It was really tense. I loved it. It's a great way to end off the movie. This movie knows how to deliver on the set pieces, and it's a fully enjoyable final act for a movie like this to have where you're worried like, okay, is this movie going to do too much in the first half and not deliver on the back end? Macquarie has always been so good about keeping things consistently great throughout the film, where it doesn't feel like the movie has topped itself too much. You may have this as your favorite action set piece, or it could be the car chase. It doesn't matter. It's consistently great. In my opinion, at least, people may disagree, but it's consistently great throughout the whole movie. And I think this was a great, great way to end up the movie. I want to mention one more nitpick here in the prologue, which I did like, and I like the way that it introduces the MacGuffin into the movie, which I thought was one of the better MacGuffins the franchise has had. I think it's uh, a really, Macquarie with the uh, plutonium bombs or whatever in the last movie, and then with the key here, I think he does um, MacGuffins really well. And I like this, the key, the two, the two parts, how they go together. I thought this stuff was really good. And my critique here is this scene that we get in like the heads of like national security or something like that, where we got Carrie Ellis here as like, I think the head of uh, the Department of Defense, something like that. I don't know. But we have these heads of government factions like giving this monologue and it all is like matching up with each other and they're like bridging into each other's next point. It's a really bad piece. Not bad. It's not really bad, but it's not good. Uh, it's very clunky uh, monologuing. Uh, and this franchise has never really done that before, in my opinion. It's um, I was just left a little bit like kind of taken out of the movie. Like why is Macquarie like giving us this like like – spoon feeding us this really like sloppily done monologue like we're not supposed to understand what you know the details of this mission are the scene before that set up the ai and what it does really well for this this scene could be a cut entirely and 
it wouldn't make a difference on the movie itself. So that was one of the scenes in particular I just did not really like. I I get what it's going for. It reminds me of like an old or James Bond movie where like it's uh, Spectre in the chair and maybe like these are people like giving this type of monologue. It reminds me of older spy films. I still don't think it was the best executed scene, but Tom Cruise with the face mask stuff, I really enjoyed. And the dialogue between him and uh, Kittredge is uh, just really good stuff. And we get great lines from Kittredge as well. He's a great addition. And it's nice to see him return to uh, this franchise. And he's a really uh, appreciated presence in every scene that he's in. Don't have much more to say on the movie. It's a great film. I loved it. It lived up to every expectation I could have had. It doesn't raise the bar after Mission Impossible Fallout, but it meets every expectation. I think people are going to really enjoy this movie. If you're a fan of this franchise, I think it's going to deliver. If you haven't seen any of these movies before, I recommend you go back and watch one of the greatest movie franchises of all time, one of the most consistently great movie franchises of all time. But if you don't want to go through all that work, well, I do think that you can still pick up on things with this movie and enjoy it. It's a great popcorn summer blockbuster in a year that, or in a summer movie season that thus far has been really bad. This has not been a great summer movie season. Flash, Indiana Jones, Insidious, Elemental, it just has not really been that strong. We've got Oppenheimer and Barbie. Uh, this weekend, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about as well. Go watch this movie. Don't let this movie bomb. Please make it a success. Please. I think it deserves it. Tom Cruise puts everything into these movies. It's a great film. I don't think you're going to be left disappointed. It's a very, very strong recommend from me. Watch the movie. I don't think you'll be left disappointed. Mission Impossible Dead Directing Part 1. Strong, strong recommend. One final note that I want to hit on before we wrap up this episode is Barbieheimer. Barbie and Oppenheimer are kind of dominated the movie conversation this week. And I'm going to break it down a little bit, my thoughts on it, my opinions on it mostly, um, as well as sprinkling in a couple of facts in there as well. Um, first off, I want to just mention this off the bat. I think this is a really, really good thing for movies where movies are kind of at a weak spot right now. Uh, we've had the occasional hit like Top Gun Maverick and Avatar The Way of Water, which have reminded us that movies are capable of, you know, of being events. And I think Barbie and Oppenheimer, kind of Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer, I've been switching it up so many times. I'm probably going to do that a lot more in my review. But anyway. I really think that this is a good thing because it's, you know, it's almost, it's good marketing, the double feature aspect. People are going to see both movies and have a double feature, all that stuff. Uh, I'm not doing that. Uh, I really want to just watch Oppenheimer um, and have that be its own separate thing. Um, and then I will probably watch Barbie. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the, I, I, you know, I'm a big uh, Sean Chandler fan. Sean Chandler talks about, it's a great YouTube uh, movie review channel that I encourage people to check out. But he released his reaction, his like 60-second reaction to the movie, and it wasn't very positive. It was actually pretty negative. And 
kind of talked about the movie being scattered uh, too, like, adult for a, should be a kid's movie. And what I was hoping Barbie was going to be was a Pixar approach where it was going to have things that adults could appreciate as well as things that kids could appreciate and be that great mix of the two. And it seems like Barbie has gone too far on the other side. And that's really disappointing to hear because, like, I'm not a, I'm obviously not a Barbie fan and wasn't really excited for this movie to begin with. But my hope was for that demographic that it, this movie should be serving, which is like young girls, right? That want to see this movie. The fact that uh, Sean Chandler, who is a father of, uh, I think, two girls or something like that, that he was kind of. Sh- like this is not a good movie to show your kids that's kind of a big hit and like a like what's going on in hollywood right now where we have this property that should be for kids and adults can appreciate why can we not get a good in between here like what is the deal um that may now i've also heard from other reviewers that this movie is just going to be divisive people are going to love it people are going to hate it um Unfortunately, I kind of know where I'm going to go on that side, but I'm going to go in with an open mind, hoping for the best. But this movie, Barbie, is projected to do more than Oppenheimer opening weekend. That's disappointing for me. Um, Oppenheimer, I think, should make more money, but you know, you can't have everything. I hope it's a movie that picks up steam. I really want people to support Oppenheimer. Go watch it. Step outside your comfort zone. I've been hearing reactions like oh it looks so you know looks so dark and mo oh, it's depressing i mean guys like, <laughs> this is art like that's kind it, art cannot just be the mcu and I, that may sound like a, that's probably one of the more pretentious things i've said i've said all episode but that's just the truth of the matter and i hope people step outside their comfort zone this movie i think is going to be great I've been hearing masterpiece thrown around a lot. I'm I'm trying not to let that hype get to me because I just want a really great Nolan movie. I'm not looking for his best movie. I'm just looking for a really good Christopher Nolan movie. If it is his best movie, then like we're technically talking about what's going to be one of my favorite movies of all time, which would be pretty awesome. Nolan's one of my Nolan is my favorite director working right now. Uh, Tarantino is the better filmmaker, but Nolan is my favorite, and I really just enjoy his style, and I hope to get a great movie out of Oppenheimer. I'm seeing it Friday. Um, I also want to mention this. I'm going to be bringing back the Movie Maniacs podcast YouTube channel. Well, I'm going to be doing like some tier list stuff, some early reactions, some smaller reviews on movies that I'm just like watching that aren't new releases, but movies I wanted to see. I saw, uh, you know, I went through all of Paul, most of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies a few weeks ago. That was a great experience. I finished David Lynch's filmography this year. That was a great experience. So things like that, I think, would be a really good way to um, add to this channel or to the the Movie Max podcast in general. So that's going to be something that will be on uh, the YouTube channel if you're interested. Anyway, I'm seeing Oppenheimer Friday with my dad, six thirty IMAX. Unfortunately, there's no 60 millimeter showing near Arkansas. In Texas, it's too far off. It's unfortunate. I really wanted to see this movie in 70 millimeter, but it's not going to happen. Uh, it's still IMAX. Uh, I'm excited. I'm going to see it multiple times. 
because that's the way Nolan movies should be seen, multiple viewings. I hope to see it again that weekend, honestly, before my review with Patrick, which will be recorded on a Monday, probably released on a Tuesday. I'm very excited to see this movie. I think it's going to be awesome. I I really do. Killian Murphy crushes it every single time. And to see him lead a Nolan movie, I think is just awesome. Honestly, I'm really, really excited. Uh, Nolan said a couple of interesting things, by the way, in the buildup to this movie, talking about never doing a superhero movie again. I don't blame him. Um, and also, uh, oh, something else that he said. I'm forgetting now. Dang it. Anyway, Nolan's been having to do a lot more press for this movie now because of the writer strike. So I'm fine with that, honestly. Uh, Christopher Nolan interview is definitely not a bad thing. So I am uh, all for the man doing more interviews. One of the things about this movie, Oppenheimer in particular, that is just so fascinating to me is, is this movie, like Paul Schrader today said that this is like a masterpiece, like one of the best movies of the century. And it's going to be game changing. I want this movie to be that. I hope it is game changing because I'm such a big Nolan fan. And I think he has been a game changing director since Memento. Um, and I, I think that Tenet is a misunderstood film. I'm, I'm, um, I'll be honest, I'm a Nolan fanboy. I'll defend a lot of the stuff that people criticize. That's just me. Um, he's like the first director I got attached to. Um, so I just have that type of connection with his films and with his filmography as a whole. I want to see him save cinema because I know it's something that he's passionate about. Um, he and Tom Cruise are both kind of like working together in a way, like Tom Cruise delivering on the summer blockbuster, Nolan delivering on the artistic event film. And one of the things I really like about Nolan is how he's been able to um, blend together entertainment with art and things that are thought-provoking and things that are interesting. I really love that about his movies. Um, I hope this is a game-changer. But will audiences see it? That is the big question. There's a lot of press for this movie, but do people care? I hope people care. I I hope that people go watch this movie. I think it's going to be great. If you're not planning on going to Oppenheimer, please do support the film. I think it's going to be awesome. Uh, but will people show up? That is the big question. I hope they do. We're just going to have to see. But I think that the Barbie Heimer talk is good for both movies and good for movies as a whole. If people will go to theaters and do this double feature, feature that's great for theaters. Uh, so this could be a really good bright spot for the summer. Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning hasn't been doing great, I've heard. I hope that changes because it's a movie that deserves to do great. Go watch it. You heard my review. It's a strong recommend. Watch the movie. Um, but I hope that this Barbie Heimer type of event, the social media that's around it, and uh, the talk people doing double features on that stuff, I hope that that elevates the like 30 to 50 million opening day or opening weekend production predictions that i'm seeing for oppenheimer i hope it's more than that i want this movie to like you know hit that one billion mark be i'm gonna see the budget real quick by the way for this movie oppenheimer budget 100 million so barbie 145 million (laughs) how much better does oppenheimer look than barbie and barbie has 45 million more i don't mean to be a barbie hater now but man only 100 million. I really hope this movie is a big success for Universal, a big success for Nolan, who 
had a bit of a flop last time in Tenet, didn't make a lot of money. I hope that this movie crushes it at the box office. People go watch it. I think it's going to be awesome. I'm excited for it. So that's my just some quick thoughts on Barbie Heimer. Uh, I'm going to do some other YouTube stuff over the next week. Check that out. Hope you guys enjoy it. Um, anyway, stay tuned for the Oppenheimer review. And uh, I'll get back to you guys next time. Hope you guys enjoyed this review. Had a great time talking about these movies. Dead Reckoning Part 1 is awesome. Go watch it and support Oppenheimer. See you next time. Peace. Peace.